Chapter 8 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 8 Contents of a Newly Discovered Chamber. A Well large copper cauldrons, bells, rings, and other objects in metal, tripods, cauldrons and large vessels, bronze bowls, cups, and dishes, description of the embossing upon them, arms and armor, shields, iron instruments, ivory remains, bronze cubes inlaid with gold, glass bowls, lenses, the royal throne. The newly discovered chamber was part of the Northwest Palace, and adjoining a room previously explored. Its only entrance was to the west, and almost on the edge of the mound. It must, consequently, have opened upon a gallery or terrace running along the riverfront of the building. The walls were of sun-dried brick, paneled round the bottom with large burnt bricks about three feet high, placed one against the other. They were coated with bitumen, and, like those forming the pavement, were inscribed with the name and usual titles of the royal founder of the building. In one corner, and partly in a kind of recess, was a well, the mouth of which was formed by brickwork about three feet high. Its sides were also bricked down to the conglomerate rock, and holes had been left at regular intervals for descent. When first discovered, it was choked with earth. The workmen emptied it until they came, at the depth of nearly sixty feet, to brackish water. The first objects found in this chamber were two plain copper vessels or cauldrons, about two and a half feet in diameter and three feet deep, resting upon a stand of brickwork, with their mouths closed by large tiles. Near them was a copper jar, which fell to pieces almost as soon as uncovered. Several vases of the same metal, though smaller in size, had been dug out of other parts of the ruins, but they were empty whilst those I am describing were filled with curious relics. I first took out a number of small bronze bells with iron tongues, and various small copper ornaments, some suspended to wires. With them were a quantity of tapering bronze rods bent into a hook and ending in a kind of lip. Beneath were several bronze cups and dishes, which I succeeded in removing entire. Scattered in the earth amongst these objects were several hundred studs and buttons in mother-of-pearl and ivory, with many small rosettes in metal. All the objects contained in these cauldrons, with the exception of the cups and dishes, were probably ornaments of horse and chariot furniture. Beneath the cauldrons were heaped lions and bulls' feet of bronze, and the remains of iron rings and bars, probably parts of tripods or stands for supporting vessels and bowls, which, as the iron had rusted away, had fallen to pieces, leaving such pieces entire as were in the more durable metal. Two other cauldrons, found further within the chamber, contained, besides several plates and dishes, four crown-shaped bronze ornaments, perhaps belonging to a throne or couch, two long ornamented bands of copper, rounded at both ends, apparently belts, such as those worn by warriors in armor, a grotesque head in bronze, probably the top of a mace, a metal wine-strainer of elegant shape, various metal vessels of peculiar form, and a bronze ornament, 
probably the handle of a dish or vase. Eight more cauldrons and jars were found in other parts of the chamber. One contained ashes and bones, the rest were empty. Some of the larger vessels were crushed almost flat, probably by the falling in of the upper part of the building. With the cauldrons were discovered two circular flat vessels, nearly six feet in diameter, and about two feet deep, which I can only compare with the brazen sea that stood in the Temple of Solomon. Cauldrons are frequently represented as part of the spoil and tribute in the sculptures of Nimrod and Kayunjik. They were so much valued by the ancients that, it appears from the Homeric poems, they were given as prizes at public games, and were considered amongst the most precious objects that could be carried away from a captured city. They were frequently embossed with flowers and other ornaments. Homer declares one so adorned to be worth an ox. Behind the cauldrons was a heap of curious and interesting objects. In one place were piled without order, one above the other, bronze cups, bowls, and dishes of various sizes and shapes. The upper vessels, having been most exposed to damp, the metal had been eaten away by rust, and was crumbling into fragments, or into a green powder. As they were cleared away, more perfect specimens were taken out, until, near the pavement of the chamber, some were found almost entire. Many of the bowls and plates fitted so closely, one within the other, that they have only been detached in England. It required the greatest care and patience to separate them from the tenacious soil in which they were embedded. Although a green crystalline deposit, arising from the decomposition of the metal, encrusted all the vessels, I could distinguish upon many of them traces of embossed and engraved ornaments. Since they have been in England, they have been carefully and skillfully cleaned, and the very beautiful and elaborate designs upon them brought to light. The bronze objects thus discovered may be classed under four heads, dishes with handles, plates, deep bowls, and cups. Some are plain, others have a simple rosette, scarab or star in the center, and many are most elaborately ornamented with the figures of men and animals, and with elegant fancy designs, either embossed or incised. The inside, and not the outside, of these vessels is ornamented. The embossed figures have been raised in the metal by a blunt instrument, three or four strokes of which, in many instances, very ingeniously produce the image of an animal. Even those ornaments which are not embossed but incised appear to have been formed by a similar process, except that the punch was applied on the inside. The tool of the engraver has been sparingly used. The most interesting dishes in the collection brought to England are, number one, with moving circular handle, the handle wanting, secured by three bosses, diameter ten and three-quarter inches, depth two and one-quarter inches, divided into two friezes surrounding a circular medallion containing a male deity with bull's ears, and hair in ample curls, wearing bracelets and a necklace of an Egyptian character, and a short tunic, the arms crossed, and the hands held by two Egyptians, who place their other hands on the head of the center figure. The inner frieze contains horsemen draped as Egyptians, galloping around in pairs. The outer, figures also wearing the Egyptian shenti or tunic, hunting lions on horseback, on foot, and in chariots. The hair of these figures is dressed after a fashion, which prevailed in Egypt from the ninth to the 8th century B.C. Each frieze is separated by a band of galochi ornament. Number two, diameter ten and a half inches, having a low rim, partly destroyed, ornamented with an embossed rosette of elegant shape, surrounded by three friezes of animals in high relief, divided by a guillosh band. The outer frieze contains twelve walking bulls, designed with considerable spirit. Between each is a dwarf shrub or tree. 
The second frieze has a bull, a winged griffin, an ibex, and a gazelle, walking one behind the other, and the same animals seized by leopards or lions in all fourteen figures. The inner frieze contains twelve gazelles. The handle is formed by a plain movable ring. The ornaments on this dish, as well as the design, are of an Assyrian character. Number three, diameter ten and three-quarter inches, and one and a half inch deep, with a raised star in the center. The handle formed by two rings, working in sockets fashioned to a rim, running about one-third round the margin, and secured by five nails or bosses. Four bands of embossed ornaments in low relief round the center, the outer band consisting of alternate standing bulls and crouching lions, Assyrian in character and treatment. The others, of an elegant pattern, slightly varied from the usual Assyrian border by the introduction of a fan-like flower in the place of a tulip. Other dishes were found still better preserved than those just described, but perfectly plain, or having only a star, more or less elaborate, embossed or engraved in the center. Many fragments were also discovered with elegant handles, some formed by the figures of rams and bulls. Of the plates, the most remarkable are, number one, shallow, and eight and three-quarter inches in diameter, the center slightly raised and incised with a star and five bands of tulip-shaped ornaments, the rest occupied by four groups, each consisting of two winged hawk-headed sphinxes, wearing the fichent or crown of the upper and lower country of Egypt, one paw raised and resting upon the head of a man kneeling on one knee, and lifting his hands in the act of adoration. Between the sphinxes, on a column in the form of a papyrus scepter, is the bust of a figure wearing on his head the sun's disc, with eurized serpents, a collar round the neck, and four feathers. Above are two winged globes with the asps, and a row of birds. Each group is enclosed by two columns with capitals in the form of the Assyrian tulip ornament, and is separated from that adjoining by a scarab with outspread wings, raising the globe with its four feet, and resting with its hind on a papyrus scepter pillar. This plate is in good preservation, having been found at the very bottom of a heap of similar relics. Number two, depth, one and three-quarter inch, diameter, nine and one-eighth inch, with a broad raised rim like that of a soup plate, embossed with figures of greyhounds pursuing a hare. The center contains a frieze in high relief, representing combats between men and lions, and a smaller border of gazelles between guillosh bands, encircling an embossed star. In this very fine specimen, although the costumes of the figures are Egyptian in character, the treatment and design are Assyrian. Number three, shallow, nine and a half inches diameter, an oval in the center, covered with dotted lozenges, and set with nine silver bosses, probably intended to represent a lake or valley, surrounded by four groups of hills, each with three crests in high relief, on which are incised, in outline, trees and stags, wild goats, bears, and leopards. On the sides of the hills, in relief, are similar figures of animals. The outer rim is incised with trees and deer. The workmanship of this specimen is Assyrian, and very minute and curious. Number four, diameter seven and one quarter inches, the center raised, and containing an eight-rayed star, with smaller stars between each ray, encircled by a guillosh band. The remainder of the plate is divided into eight compartments, by eight double-faced figures of Egyptian character in high relief. Between each figure are five rows of animals, enclosed in guillosh bands, the first three consisting of stags and hinds, the fourth of lions, and the fifth of hares, each compartment containing thirteen figures. A very beautiful specimen, unfortunately much injured. 
Number five. Diameter, eight and three-quarter inches. Depth, one and one-quarter inch. The embossings and ornaments on this plate are of an Egyptian character. The center consists of four heads of the cow-eared goddess Otur, forming, with lines of bosses, an eight-rayed star, surrounded by hills, indicated as in plate number three, but filled in with rosettes and other ornaments. Between the hills are incised animals and trees. A border of figures, almost purely Egyptian, but unfortunately only in part preserved, encircles the plate. The first remaining group is that of a man seated on a throne, beneath an ornamented arch, with the Egyptian Baal, represented as on the coins of Kosora, standing full face. To the right of this figure is a square ornament with pendants, resembling a sealed document, and beneath it the crux and sata, or Egyptian symbol of life. The next group is that of a warrior in Egyptian attire, holding a mace in his right hand, and in his left a bow and arrow, with the hair of a captive of smaller proportions who crouches before him. The next group represents the Egyptian Baal, with a lion's skin round his body and plumes on his head, having on each side an Egyptian figure wearing the shent or short tunic, carrying a bow, and plucking the plumes from the head of the god, perhaps symbolic of the victory of Horus over Typhoon. The Egyptian god Amon, bearing a bird in one hand and a falchion in the other, with female figures similar to that last described, appears to form the next group. But unfortunately, this part of the plate has been nearly destroyed. The whole border, however, appears to have represented a mixture of religious and historical scenes. Number six, diameter six inches, depth one and a half inch. A projecting rim, ornamented with figures of vultures with outspread wings, an embossed rosette, encircled by two rows of fan-shaped flowers and guillotine bands, occupies a raised center, which is surrounded by a frieze, consisted of groups of two vultures devouring a hare. A highly finished and very beautiful specimen. On the back of this plate are five letters, either in the Phoenician or Assyrian cursive character. Numbers seven and eight, covered with groups of small stags, surrounding an elaborate star, one plate containing above six hundred figures. The animals are formed by three blows from a blunt instrument or punch. These plates are ornamented with small bosses of silver and gold let into the copper. Number nine, diameter seven and five-eighths inches, depth one and a half inch, of fine workmanship, the center formed by an incised star, surrounded by guillotine and tulip bands. Four groups on the sides representing a lion, lurking among papyra or reeds, and about to spring on a bull. Number ten, diameter seven and a half inches. In the center, a winged scarab raising the disk of the sun, surrounded by guillotine and tulip bands, and by a double frieze, the inner consisting of trees, deer, winged ori, sphinxes, and papyrus plants, the outer of winged scarabs, flying serpents, deer, and trees, all incised. The plates above described are the most interesting specimens brought to this country. There are others, indeed, scarcely less remarkable for beauty of workmanship, or, when plain or ornamented with a simple star in the center, for elegance of form. Of the seventeen deep bowls discovered, only three have embossings, sufficiently well preserved, to be described. The greater part appeared to be perfectly plain. The most remarkable is eight and a half inches in diameter, and three and three-quarter inches deep, and has, at the bottom, in the center, an embossed star, surrounded by a rosette, and on the sides, a hunting scene in bold relief. A second, seven and a half inches in diameter, and three and three-quarter inches deep, has in the center a medallion similar to that in the one last described, and on the sides, in very high relief, two lions and two sphinxes of Egyptian character, wearing a collar, feathers, and housings, 
and a headdress formed by a disc with two ori. Both bulls are remarkable for the boldness of the relief and the archaic treatment of the figures, in this respect resembling the ivories previously discovered at Nimrod. They forcibly call to mind the early remains of Greece, and especially the metalwork and painted pottery found in very ancient tubes in Arturia, which they so closely resemble not only in design but in subject, the same mythic animals and the same ornaments being introduced, that we cannot but attribute to both the same origin. The third, seven and three-quarter inches in diameter and two and a half inches deep, has in the center a star formed by the Egyptian hawk of the sun bearing the disc, and having at its side a whip between two rays ending in lotus flowers. On the sides are embossed figures of wild goats, lotus-shaped shrubs, and dwarf trees of peculiar form. Of the cups, the most remarkable are, number one, diameter five and five-eighths inches, and two and a quarter inches deep, very elaborately ornamented with figures of animals, interlaced and grouped together in singular confusion, covering the whole inner surface, apparently representing a combat between griffins and lions. A very curious and interesting specimen, not unlike some of the Italian chasings of the Cinquecento. Number two, a fragment embossed with the figures of lions and bulls, of very fine workmanship. Of the remaining cups, many are plain but of elegant shape. One or two are ribbed, and some have simply an embossed star in the center. About a 150 bronze vessels discovered in this chamber are now in the British Museum, without including numerous fragments, which, although showing traces of ornament, are too far destroyed by decomposition to be cleaned. The metal of the dishes, bowls, and rings has been carefully analyzed, and has been found to contain one part of tin to ten of copper, being exactly the relative proportions of the best ancient and modern bronze. The bells, however, have 14% of tin, showing that the Assyrians were well aware of the effect produced by changing the proportions of the metals. These two facts show the advance made by them in the metallurgic art. The effect of age and decay has been to cover the surface of all these bronze objects with a coating of beautiful crystals of malachite, beneath which the component substances have been converted into suboxide of copper and peroxide of tin, leaving in many instances no traces whatever of the metals. It would appear that the Assyrians were unable to give elegant forms or a pleasing appearance to objects in iron alone, and that consequently they frequently overlaid that metal with bronze, either entirely or partially by way of ornament. The feet of the ring tripods previously described furnish highly interesting specimens of this process, and prove the progress made by the Assyrians in it. The iron enclosed within the copper has not been exposed to the same decay as that detached from it, and will still take a polish. The tin was probably obtained from Phoenicia, and consequently that used in the bronzes of the British Museum may actually have been exported nearly 3,000 years ago from the British Isles. We find the Assyrians and Babylonians making an extensive use of this metal, which was probably one of the chief articles of trade supplied by the cities of the Syrian coast, whose seamen sought for it on the distant shores of the Atlantic. The embossed and engraved vessels from Nimrod afford many interesting illustrations of the progress made by the ancients in metallurgy. From the Egyptian character of the designs, and especially of the drapery of the figures, in several of the specimens it may be inferred that some of them were not Assyrian, but had been brought from a foreign people. As in the ivories, however, the workmanship, subjects, and mode of treatment are more Assyrian than Egyptian, and seem to show that the artist either copied from Egyptian models or was a native of a country under the influence of the arts and tastes of Egypt. The Sidonians, and other inhabitants of the Phoenician coast, 
were the most renowned workers in metal of the ancient world. In the Homeric poems, they are frequently mentioned as the artificers who fashioned and embossed metal cups and bowls, and Solomon sought cunning men from Tyre to make the gold and brazen utensils for his temple and palaces. It is, therefore, not impossible that the vessels discovered at Nimrod were the work of Phoenician artists, brought expressly from Tyre, or carried away amongst the captives when their cities were taken by the Assyrians, who, we know from many passages in the Bible, always secured the smiths and artisans, and placed them in their own immediate dominions. They may have been used for sacrificial purposes, at royal banquets, or when the king performed certain religious ceremonies, for in the bas-reliefs he is frequently presented on such occasions with a cup or bowl in his hand. Or they may have formed part of the spoil of some Syrian nation, placed in a temple at Nineveh, as the holy utensils of the Jews, after the destruction of the sanctuary, were kept in the temple of Babylon. It is not, indeed, impossible that some of them may have been actually brought from the cities round Jerusalem by Sennacherib himself, or from Samaria by Salmaneser or Sargon, who, we find, inhabited the palace at Nimrod, and of whom several relics have already been discovered in the ruins. Around the vessels I have described were heaped arms, remains of armor, iron instruments, glass bowls, and various objects in ivory and bronze. The arms consisted of swords, daggers, shields, and the heads of spears and arrows, which, being chiefly of iron, fell to pieces almost as soon as exposed to the air. The shields are of bronze and circular, the rim bending inwards and forming a deep groove round the edge. The handles are of iron, and fastened by six bosses or nails, the heads of which form an ornament on the outer face of the shield. The diameter of the largest and most perfect is two feet six inches. Although their weight must have impeded the movements of an armed warrior, the Assyrian spearmen are constantly represented in the bas-reliefs with them. Such, too, were probably the bucklers that Solomon hung on his towers. A number of thin iron rods, adhering together in bundles, were found amongst the arms. They may have been the shafts of arrows, which, it has been conjectured from several passages in the Old Testament, were sometimes of burnished metal. Two, Make bright the arrows may, however, only allude to the head fastened to a reed, or shaft of some light wood. The armor consists of parts of breastplates, and of other fragments, embossed with figures and ornaments. Amongst the iron instruments were the head of a pick, a double-handed saw, about three feet six inches in length, several objects representing the heads of sledgehammers, and a large blunt spearhead, such as we find from the sculptures, were used during sieges to force stones from the walls of besieged cities. The most interesting of the ivory relics were a carved staff, perhaps a royal scepter, part of which has been preserved, although in the last stage of decay, and several entire elephant tusks, the largest being about two feet five inches long. The ivory could, with difficulty, be detached from the earth in which it was embedded. It fell to small fragments and even to dust almost as soon as exposed to the air. I have described elsewhere the frequent use of ivory for the adornment of ancient eastern palaces and temples, as well as for thrones and furniture. Ezekiel includes horns of ivory amongst the objects brought to Tyre from Dedan, and the Assyrians may have obtained their supplies from the same country, which some believe to have been in the Persian Gulf. Amongst various small objects in bronze were two cubes, each having on one face the figure of a scarab with outstretched wings inlaid in gold. Very interesting specimens, and probably amongst the earliest known, of an art carried in modern times to great perfection in the East. Two entire glass bowls, with fragments of others, were also found in this chamber, 
The glass, like all that from the ruins, is covered with pearly scales, which, on being removed, leave prismatic opal-like colors of the greatest brilliancy, showing, under different lights, the most varied and beautiful tints. On this highly interesting relic is the name of Sargon, with his title of King of Assyria, in cuneiform characters, and the figure of a lion. We are therefore able to fix its date to the latter part of the 7th century B.C. It is, consequently, the most ancient known specimen of transparent glass, none from Egypt being, it is believed, earlier than the time of the Samachetti, the end of the 6th or the beginning of the 5th century B.C. Opaque colored glass was, however, manufactured at a much earlier period, and some exist in the 15th century B.C. The Sargon vase was blown in one solid piece, and then shaped and hollowed out by a turning machine, of which the marks are still plainly visible. Within it were found, it will be remembered, two larger vases in white alabaster, inscribed with the name of the same king. They were all probably used for holding some ointment or cosmetic. With the glass bowls was discovered a rock-crystal lens, with opposite convex and plain faces. Its properties could scarcely have been unknown to the Assyrians, and we have consequently the earliest specimen of a magnifying and burning glass. It was buried beneath a heap of fragments of beautiful blue opaque glass, apparently the enamel of some object in ivory or wood, which had perished. In the further corner of the chamber, to the left hand, stood the royal throne. Although it was utterly impossible, from the complete state of decay of the materials, to preserve any part of it entire, I was able, by carefully removing the earth, to ascertain that it resembled, in shape, the chair of state of the king, as seen in the sculptures of Koyunjik and Korsabad, and particularly the represented in the bas-relief already described, of Sennacherib receiving the captives in spoil after the conquest of the city of Lashish. With the exception of the legs, which appear to have been of ivory, it was of wood, cased or overlaid with bronze, as the throne of Solomon was of ivory, overlaid with gold. The metal was most elaborately engraved and embossed with symbolic figures and ornaments, like those embroidered on the robes of the early Nimrod king, such as winged deities struggling with griffins, mythic animals, men before the sacred tree, and the winged lion and bull. As the woodwork over which the bronze was fastened by means of small nails of the same material had rotted away, the throne fell to pieces, but the metal casing was partly preserved. The legs were adorned with lion's paws resting on a pine-shaped ornament, like the thrones of the later Assyrian sculptures, and stood on a bronze base, a rod with loose rings, to which was once hung embroidered drapery or some rich stuff, appears to have belonged to the back of the chair, or to a framework raised above or behind it. In front of the throne was the footstool, also of wood overlaid with embossed metal, and adorned with the heads of rams or bulls. The feet ended in lion's paws and pine cones, like those of the throne. The two pieces of furniture may have been placed together in a temple as an offering to the gods, as Midas placed his throne in the temple of Delphi. The ornaments on them were so purely Assyrian that there can be little doubt of their having been expressly made for the Assyrian king, and not having been the spoil of some foreign nations. Such, with an alabaster jar and a few other objects in metal, were the relics found in the newly opened room. After the examination I made of the building during my former excavation, this accidental discovery proves that other treasures may still exist in the mound of Nimrod, and increases my regret that means were not at my command to remove the rubbish from the center of the other chambers in the palace. End of chapter 8 Recording by Todd